Hello, welcome to PMM Insight, a plastics machinery and manufacturing podcast. This is an episode of PMM in person, where we talk to the most interesting players in the plastics industry. I am your host, Ron Shen, editor of PMM. My guest today is Lori Harbor, CEO of Harbor Results Incorporated and a well-known analyst of the plastics industry. Harbor Results is headquartered in Southfield, Michigan, and Laurie has a deep understanding of the complete automotive supply chain. Laurie, tell us how the 46-day strike by the United Auto Workers impacted the plastics industry, and what do you see going forward in terms of recovery? Well, thank you for having me. Um, It it was a definite um, interesting 46 days um, within the industry. You know, the automotive space has been um, uh, very sort of a bumpy road, right? When you look, think about the pandemic and supply chain challenges that we had and, and then changes in inventory and things were just sort of starting to get better and we were starting to get kind of our sea legs back again, you know, in terms of production. And then we hit this um, automotive negotiations that really led to this 46 uh, days of you know, sort of very sporadic up and down time, right? So the way that the union decided to do this, they um, went after specific plants that in their mind were going to create an impact, but maybe not devastate the company initially, but but try to get the interest level to sit and negotiate and have the conversations, right? So, um, it, and, and that led to kind of in some weeks we announced, you know, plant closures at some OEMs and not others. And it kind of depended on how the OEM was responding during the negotiation discussion. And so in the end, it, it, it probably wasn't as bad as it could have been if the automotive um, unions had struck every plant at all three of the, the domestic three manufacturers, which was kind of what they were threatening. Um, but certainly had an impact on the supplier community that was supporting these companies directly, meaning maybe you have one plant that makes seats for the Bronco or, you know, one plant making drivetrains for, you know, one of the other vehicles. So, but for the most part, those suppliers that support the D3 are spread across multiple plants and multiple products. And so that allowed them to kind of cushion the blow in terms of their overall supplier health and, and just be affected by, you know, certain parts and products that they produced. Um, as we sit here today, um, of course, we had a, a Unifor strike in Canada as well, right? So we had Unifor and the UAW that went into strike mode. Um, as we sit here today, um, we were ratified across all three of those OEMs and in both countries. Um, the, the impact that the OEMs are, are stating they will see is, you know, varies by OEM and by which products were down. General Motors is saying it's somewhere around $9.3 billion of additional cost over the life of the contract. So it's a four and a half year contract and, and they're saying it's about $9.3 billion. So General Motors is saying that this um, increased labor cost is about $575 per vehicle over the life of the contract. Now, that's an average. In other words, it will start out at a lower increase, and then by the end of the contract will be something more like eight or $900 per vehicle. So that's sort of an average. They have lost approximately 95,000 vehicles in the shutdown 
which they, they claim is about just over a billion dollars in profit. Um, Ford is similar. Ford is saying it's about eight, just under $9 billion of additional cost and somewhere around $900 per vehicle when you get out to 2028. So um, Stellantis hasn't really put a dollar value to it. But one of the other you know, implications is you're seeing now in the media is that Stellantis is now taking additional shifts off of their plants. They've decided to take a third shift off of the plant that produces the large um, uh, extended Grand Cherokee and some changes in Toledo. So they're calling for reduced volumes and they've made some labor changes. So um, on the flip side, General Motors and particularly Ford have said the way that we're going to offset this is by adding more automation. We're going to reduce the content of some of our vehicles, implement more automation so that we ultimately will be able to balance the increased labor cost by the number of people that we utilize in the system. So um, that's sort of the impact at the OEM level. And, you know, the, the, the fallout impact is there's a couple critical areas, right? Um, of course, this will raise the labor cost and competitiveness, challenge the competitiveness of these D3 companies. And what I mean by that is, they were already higher labor costs than Honda, Nissan, Toyota, and the, the Germans. Now you look at them being even more, la- more you know, increased labor costs. That means they're going to have to raise the price of vehicles even further. And you know, someone has to pay for this increased cost, whether that's the, the suppliers or the, the consumers. Um, and so there's a chance that this could continue to drop market share for the D3. Um, now, the flip side of that is the UAW has been very vocal. They're going to go after everyone else. And, and their motivation for that is they just want a really big increase in wages. So they get to, you know, kind of tout that, um, all those winnings and say to the, the Hondas and Toyotas, Mazdas of the world, hey, look what we got. We can get this for you, too. So they've already made some, uh, they've already got people signing cards at the Volkswagen plant down in Chattanooga, and they plan to continue that effort. So that will impact, you know, of course, their labor costs as well. And many of them have already raised labor costs just to try to, you know, fend off the union. Um, the other thing is the supplier impact, right? That there are definitely, we went into this strike with a very vulnerable supply base. And what I mean by that is they had been affected by the pandemic and supply chain issues and overall reduced volumes, right? I mean, we're still only at about 15 and a half million units in the marketplace. So down from 17. So for them, Profits were already strained, and of course, all their costs went up. Wages, inflationary costs, material costs. And so they were, they were vulnerable from a profit standpoint. And now this just impacted them further to be down, you know, for us in select plants and select products for a period of time. So lastly, I, would, I contend and did some work with the, the MEMA organization talking to um, President Biden's office about the criticality of this you know, a cost of doing business and wage increases. I mean, this is putting our U.S. manufacturing base at a very difficult, um, uncompetitive environment to the rest of the world in some cases, you know, the low-cost countries. And so the economic impact on manufacturing long-term could be relatively substantial, right? So um, it's yet to be known, of course, but these are areas that we have to watch in order to see what, what the impact is. So um, in, and of course, 2028 um, will be here before we know it, and I'm sure they will press even harder 
um, for additional um, changes in the union contract. Their concern is electric vehicles and the potential of lower demand of labor. And by that time, we'll have a lot more of those in production, right? So I think they tabled some of those things in the negotiation and we'll come back to them in, in four years or so. So that's kind of a summary of kind of where we see the market, um, you know, based on, on this sort of short and longer term implications from the, from the 46 day strike. Will any of the uh, 25% pay increase plus restoration of cost of living increases won by the UAW trickle down to workers in the plastics industry and other supplier industries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is one of the biggest concerns I have that I'm, I'm counseling my customers on, which are small and mid-sized you know, plastics and metals and others, is that you know, particularly geographically, right? I mean, this is going to trickle down to tier one suppliers first and foremost. In other words, they're going to have to increase their wages. And then those subsequent smaller tier one and tier two, or uh, tier two and tier three suppliers will have to increase their wages. So, you know, it's a fight for people. We're still at a very low unemployment rate in this country, even though we're starting to see some, you know, softening of inflation and change in the economy. But we, it's still hard to find people and people who want to work in these manufacturing jobs. And so, you know, if I have a very high paying job at, at a UAW plant, I'm going to try to get that. If I can't, my next opportunity is tier one and then so on and so on. So it creates wage pressure in every portion of our economy. And that's why I believe it's, it's an economic impact globally for us as a nation. Do you believe the plastics industry fully understands the impact that the transition to electric vehicles is going to have on its business? Um, I think there are several suppliers and companies that absolutely do understand the impact. And some of the large tier ones are working on that significantly, prepping what that product profile looks like. Some of them have won new business. Some of them have lost business. Um, for the plastics industry in general, um, if I look at the plastic on a car, it's dramatically not changed on a Bev product. And what I mean by that is I still need an interior. I still need exterior plastic in certain areas. Um, what I lose is some of the, the black plastic under the engine compartment and things of that nature. But the biggest impact is really on stamping and powertrain, die casting. Um, but the question becomes, what do I make as a supplier of plastics? What's the implication long-term? And probably the biggest implication is the volume levels right now while we're in transition, right? If I make for an F-150 that sells over 500,000 units, that's very different than selling for a Ford F-150 Lightning that we sell 50,000 of, right? So until volumes reach a level of, uh, of criticality, it's a, it's a challenge for molders in their facilities to manage the mix and the volumes. Okay, let's, I'd like to get just a little bit farther afield now in terms of the plastics industry and maybe a bit away from the, the automo purely automotive suppliers. And the plastics processing machinery suppliers tell me that many processors have more molding machines than they need right now uh, because they bought heavily during the COVID period when business was booming uh, and business has slowed. And as a result, they have machines that are not being used um, uh, has that been your observation as well? And if so, how long do you think it'll take for the machinery sales to rebound? 
Yeah, I mean, we have a tremendous overcapacity situation in plastics right now. Um, I, we, we gather data from 150-ish molders in, in sort of small and mid-size, and they're operating at about 60% utilization on a five-day, 24-hour shift pattern. So um, you, you have a lot of molders, right? I mean, there's thousands and thousands of molders, and when you look across that base... There's a real struggle to fill capacity and volumes are down right now, not just in automotive, but appliance and, you know, all the things that went crazy in COVID, buying appliances, buying RVs, buying, you know, things that were sort of discretionary, but we had this extra money to spend on it have now dropped down. And so volumes are softening and companies have a lot of open capacity. I mean, my biggest request from clients right now is help me find new customers, Help me find where I can go fill my capacity. So, um, I mean, I'm still seeing people buy machines for replenishment of old equipment, you know, replacement of old equipment. Um, we're definitely seeing some of that, and the, 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 the manufacturers have been very aggressive in pricing to place those machines. But it's not happening the way that it was because of our overcapacity situation. So I think it's going to be a few years of replacement and, and um, repair, you know, replacement of old machines before we get to the point where we're really seeing capacity grow again, which I think will happen in a couple of years as, as the economy returns to some normal, I don't know what normal is anymore, but some normal level, right? What's the situation with mold makers in North America now? Uh, very tenuous. Um, we have seen, we have lost 50 shops um, in the last two to three years. Um, and a couple of them very sizable, very large, 50 million plus revenue shops. Um, uh, the the market of, you know, going to China for low cost country tooling is definitely on the rise. Um, companies are seeing that they can get it cheaper over there, even if they have to put some repair or improvement or engineering changes into it when they get it here. So I'm very concerned about the mold making market. Um Companies have really got to hunker down and and not um, go after projects that don't have a margin for them, and they've got to execute. Um, but it's going to be a challenge moving forward. We have a lot of new vehicles to be launched, and a lot of other products and other industries over the next three, you know, balance of the decade. And there's a lot of demand. The challenge is is where will we source it? Because China's hungry to to fill their shops. Remember, they lost GDP and and a lot of revenue too when COVID hit. So. Um, yeah, it's a challenge uh, for them to, to really stay healthy right now. A lot of them are troubled. Okay, one last question. Do you think the NPE will give the industry a bump or the problems such that such as high interest rates and labor shortages and the overall economic uncertainty, are those problems too big for the NPE to matter? No, I actually think NPE is going to be one of the biggest ever. I think, you know, it's been so long since we had an NPE and people are hungry for automation. They're hungry for technology. You know, how do we offset this inability to find labor and, and how do we improve our efficiency to make us more competitive against low cost country environments? Um, and they're also all looking for new sales, right? So um, all the people I'm talking to are sending droves of people from their company um, to walk the show, um, most of all of my um, 
my colleagues that you know support the industry have have booths and larger booths than they have in the past and so lots of plans lots of money being spent i do think this can be one of the best mpes or biggest mpes because people need to to make a stepped change in their technology their automation and their manufacturing and i think they're they're looking for you know what what's out there what can i do to make myself a better business so i'm excited for it we got a lot going on ourselves at MPE, and I think it's going to be a great show. Well, thank you for ending this podcast on a high note. I was beginning to get a little worried. Everything was so grim up until this point, this last question. So we really, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with us and, and your time, and uh, it's been um, a fantastic insight. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Take care. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of PMM in Person. Thanks to Associate Editor Marvin Brown for editing this podcast. You can always find our podcast and the latest information about the worldwide plastics industry on our website, www.plasticsmachinerymanufacturing.com, and on social media. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, and please tell a friend or colleague who would enjoy the show. This podcast is produced by Plastics Machinery and Manufacturing, an Endeavor Business Media brand.